look at these first two verses this morning, Romans 12, 1 and 2. We're continuing our series uh, on Christian worldviews, what it means to think like a Christian. And uh, we're, we're coming to really what is one of the, the central passages when we think about the importance of a Christian worldview, to think like a Christian. I think what we see in this passage is that this process of sanctification, becoming more holy, becoming more like Christ, as we are all supposed to be doing as Christians, is a process that begins and sort of centers around having our mind renewed, having our mind changed from the way that we typically think in the world, the way that the world thinks, and the way that we think because we're from the world. Uh, but now we've been changed, we've become sons of God, and we're, we're God's children now, and we're supposed to be following and living for Him and becoming more sanctified. And that process begins with and centers on having our mind renewed, having it changed to think as God would have us to think. And that is what a Christian worldview is, a Christian ideology, a Christian philosophy, a Christian perspective on the world. That's what we're calling ourselves to. And I think this is a, a central issue. So let's read Romans chapter 12, beginning at verse number one. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Some translations say reasonable service. We'll talk about that in a minute. Verse number two. Do not be conformed to this world. Christian, don't be conformed. Don't fit into the mold of this world. But instead of that, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So how are we transformed? How does that process take place? Well, by the renewing of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and Perfect. What is it that determines our behavior as human beings? Where do our actions come from? We're going to talk this morning, as I've mentioned already, about a worldview and the effect that that has on our behavior. I believe that our worldview, our philosophy, our ideology, our outlook on life is really the source of all of our behavior. And so we're going to kind of slow that down. You know, some of you went, uh, hopefully most of you had biology in class and uh, when you're in high school and perhaps you dissected a frog and, and opened it up and looked at all the different parts or a pig. Uh, and that's kind of what we're going to do this morning as we think about our actions and where they come from. Uh, we're going to slow it down and kind of look and, and dive a little bit deeper into this so that we can understand what Paul's calling us to when he, when he calls us to have our, our mind renewed. For a, another illustration, since it's uh, you know, the beginning of the NFL season, and praise the Lord for that. Uh, some of you watch the NFL, and, and you see the instant replays, and they slow it down, and they show it over and over again, and they zoom in, and you're, you're trying to determine, did his foot come in and touch on that white line, or is it just right on the edge of that white line? They zoom it in, uh, you know, times a hundred to look at that one little perspective, and that's what we want to do when we about the way that we think and how our actions, where they they come from. We want to slow it down and zoom in on what it means to have your mind renewed and where your actions come from. But before we do that uh, this morning, I want us to just look at this text for a minute and kind of see the context uh, that this 
this command, this appeal. He says, I appeal to you. It's a, it's a plea. Uh, it's, it's a little bit stronger than a suggestion and not quite a command. It's, a, it's an appeal to be changed, to be transformed. And that transformation process takes place by renewing your mind. So let's look at this passage uh, for just a minute. First of all, I want us to see the foundation of this appeal. The appeal is be transformed by the renewing of your mind. But first, let, let's look at the foundation. On what basis does he call us to do this? What is it that would lead us as Christians to want to have our minds transformed, to not be conformed to the world, instead to be transformed by the renewing of our minds? What, what would lead us to want to do that? Well, we see right away, uh, we, we see, I appeal to you, therefore. We see that therefore. Some versions might have that ver- therefore at the beginning of the sentence. Therefore, I appeal to you, brothers. What, what we have in Romans chapter 12 is really a transition. Romans is, is just a, a great theological treatise. And, and Paul has been laying out all these various truths about the gospel. I'm going through Romans in our, our community group and teaching through that. And uh, I, I've told people that, that Romans is kind of like a, an owner's manual for the gospel. Uh, it, it gives all the detail. We, we sometimes get in a, I, I got a new truck and I jump in and start it and drive it. I don't read the owner's manual, but uh, but Romans is, is like the owner's manual. Sometimes we believe and we're saved, but, but the book of Romans tells us how this salvation work, works, how it comes about. And so uh, Paul has been doing that in 11, chapter, he, he's, 11 chapters. He's been unpacking what the gospel is, how it is that we're saved by faith and all of these things. And now he comes, as he does so often in his books, and he begins to give us some practical applications. He begins to call us to a certain behavior, but he does it based on everything that he's he's already said. He says, therefore, I appeal to you. Notice what he says here by the mercies of God. I'm appealing to you on the basis of God's mercies, his his the multitude of the mercies that he's given to you. That's the basis that I'm appealing to you on. So what we see so often in Scripture, especially in the letters of Paul is that God's commands are always preceded by a description of what God has done for us. Grace always precedes work. We don't do in order to, in order to become, but God makes us and therefore we do. One way to put it is the indicatives, the statements of what God has done for us always precede the imperatives, the commands that God gives to us. Another way to say it is what God asks us to do is always, what God asks us to do is always a response to what God has already done for us. In other words, we don't earn our salvation. We don't work and then merit it. No, God gives it to us as a gift. And as a response to what God has done for us, now our lives are changed. Now we want to follow Him. Now we want to live for Him. If you mix those up, you, you get rid of the gospel. You lose the gospel. The gospel is the message of God's salvation on your behalf, what He has done to save you. And then it is our response flows out of that. But what are these mercies? He says, I'm making this appeal to you to be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and I'm doing it on the basis of God's mercies. Let's think back, and we could just walk through the book of Romans a little bit and see some of these mercies that stand out to us. What you'll see in the first two and a half chapters of the book of Romans 
is sort of the bad news. God, and through the Apostle Paul, is demonstrating to us that we're sinners and that we're condemned before God because of our sin. So Romans chapter 1 begins right away. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So he gives us the bad news first. He opens up the beginning of the, the book of Romans. He, he says some greetings and he says, I, look, I'm Paul. I'm a minister of the gospel. And let me tell you what that gospel is. It begins with some bad news. God's wrath is being revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness that we've committed. How we've suppressed the truth. God's revealed it and we suppress it and we go after a million other things other than the Lord. And that goes on for two and a half chapters. And it kind of comes to a, a crescendo in that passage, uh, right before that passage that, that Vance read in chapter 3. It says in Romans 3, 9, What then, are Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. All of humanity are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not, not one. You can just imagine Paul's waiting for somebody to say, yeah, but wait a minute, I, I am. No, not, not one. There's none righteous. No, not one. No one understands and no one seeks for God. Romans chapter 3 kind of comes to that peak where it says that the law was given so that every mouth may be stopped. Let me just read that. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped. And the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So for two and a half chapters, the beginning of the book of Romans, Paul's working to shut our mouths. Paul's working so that people will not say, I'm going to heaven because of what I've done. I'm going to heaven because I've been a good neighbor. I've been a good citizen. I've been a good father. I've been a good mother. I've been a good person in the community. None of that is going to get you to heaven. And for two and a half chapters, Paul just shows over and over again, we're guilty, we're condemned before God. This is where the mercies of God begin in that passage that that. Uh, that Vance read. Let's just read that again. But now, in light of the fact that we're all condemned before God, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God, listen to this, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. We're given righteousness. It's not a righteousness that we earn or merit or work to attain. It's a righteousness that we're given as a gift when we believe in Jesus Christ. It's His righteousness and we, we receive it by faith. Faith is the opposite of working. Faith is trusting in somebody else to work for you. And that's what Jesus has done. What we're called to do. There is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified. We're declared to be right with God by grace, by His grace, as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And from there, Paul just goes on to unpack this gospel. This gospel that we receive the righteousness of God as a gift by simply believing in Jesus Christ. So in chapter 4, verse 25, it says that Jesus, our Lord, was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. 
chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we're justified by believing in Jesus Christ. We see these mercies just begin to unfold throughout the book of Romans chapter 5. Verse 20 says that that the law came to increase our sin and show us how sinful we are. But Paul says the more that we see of our sin, the more that God's grace abounded. Your your sin cannot, cannot overcome the grace of God no matter how much sin you have. No matter how many things you've committed. No matter how much wrong you've done. There's enough grace of God to redeem you. And to save you, chapter 6, we see more mercies of God. The fact that we've been given a new spiritual life. We've died with Christ to our sin and to our old way of living. And we've been raised. There's a new spiritual life that we have. We've been born again. We move on, chapter 8. There's there's no, chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation. Are you here this morning and, and you've committed some sin? You're struggling in your walk with the Lord and you're... You're, you're believing the lie of Satan right now that you're condemned by God. No, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And those who are in Christ Jesus are those who've trusted in Him. Those who have believed in Him. There is no condemnation for you here this morning. Even though chapter 1 and chapter 2 have said that the wrath of God has coming. And that you deserve God's wrath. And that you were at one time under God's right condemnation. But for now, those who believed in Jesus Christ, there's no more condemnation. You are freed from God's wrath. You are freed from the condemnation that you rightfully deserve through Jesus Christ. Chapter 8 also says that we've been adopted into the family of God. He's he's taken us in. And again, chapter 8 says that He won't spare any good thing for His children. Is there something good that you need? God will spare nothing for you. Chapter 8 says that nothing can separate us from the love of God. More of these mercies just unfold. Chapter 9 says that we've been specially chosen by God uh, to be made a part of His people. Chapter 10 says that whoever's called on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Chapter 11 says that we've been grafted in to God's family, into God's people. All of these mercies have been given to us. And it all comes to a crescendo in chapter 11. Verse 33 that says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. It all comes to a head there in in the end of chapter 11 as we see the great mercies unfolded that God has bestowed on us. Then, and only then, after we understand that we're not saved by works, that we're saved by Faith in Jesus Christ alone and what He's done for us. Only then do we then get commands. Now do this. And it's on the basis of all those mercies. Don't do this because you're trying to work your way into heaven. Don't do this because you want to merit God's favor. Or you think that you can get a little closer to the Lord based on the good stuff that you do. No, do this on the basis of the Gospel. The fact that He saved you and freely redeemed you. And there's no condemnation. Now... Get to work, Christian. Therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living sacrifice. And that's what we see here this morning. We see not only the foundation of the the appeal, but now we're getting into the substance of the appeal. What is it that he's calling us to do? And it is here the fact that he's calling us to give a total commitment to the Lord. 
You see, if everything is true from chapter 1 all the way through chapter 11, the only reasonable response, and that's why some people do translate that, this is your reasonable service. The only reasonable response to all that we've seen in the first 11 chapters is that you give your body as a living sacrifice. You give yourself totally and completely in a full commitment to serve the Lord for the rest of your life. That's what you're called to. Not because you're trying to earn salvation or merit it, but because it's already been freely given to you. God has already done everything for your salvation and He's handed it to you on the basis of you believing and trusting in Jesus Christ. Now, live for Christ. Now, live for the Lord on that basis and and give your total being, your total person, give your body as a living sacrifice. We see here, and I think that's what he's clarifying here. He's saying, wait a minute, I'm not, I'm, I'm not talking about you know, some kind of weird cultish thing where you, you offer yourself as a sacrifice. Uh, you know, Literally, you commit suicide in, in order to show your devotion to the Lord. That's not what I'm calling. This is a living sacrifice. And he says here, that's your spiritual worship. That is your spiritual worship. What I'm calling for is, is not for you to go lay on an altar and and have someone kill you, I'm I'm calling for you day in and day out to give your mind and your heart and your soul and every aspect of your being in devotion to the Lord. Live for Him because of what He's done for you. It calls calls for us to give a total commitment to Christ. One person says it this way, Paul does not spiritualize the cult, that is this idea of sacrifice, He is saying it is not as if sacrifice has become something we don't physically do anymore. Rather, he extends the sphere of the cultic, that is the practice of sacrificing, into every dimension of our life. So so a sacrifice for the Christian is not just going to a building and offering an animal. It's every aspect of our life. Thus, the Christian is called to a worship that is not confined to one place, or to one time, but which involves all places and all times. You see, Christians, we fall sometimes into the mindset of the old covenant people. You know, we go and we, we do our worship at the temple. We go to the church building and we do our worship there. And, and we sing songs and we do special acts of worship to the Lord. And that's our worship. But what this commentator is saying, what Paul is saying is that's not for the Christian ultimately what worship is about. Certainly we do worship here. But what he's saying is, for the Christian, everything that you do, everywhere that you go, is an act of worship and devotion to the Lord. When you're giving your life in total commitment to the Lord, so that you live for the Lord in your home, the way that you parent, in, in your school system, where the way that you study, in the way in the workplace, the way that you work and the way that you think about your vocation, everything that you do is an act of worship and devotion to the Lord. There is no secular for the Christian. Everything is an act of worship. Everywhere is a church. Ernst Caseman said it this way, Christian, uh, Christian worship does not consist of what is practiced at sacred sites at sacred times, and with sacred acts. It is the offering of bodily existence in the otherwise profane sphere. Worship services and and the sacraments are no longer separated from every day, 
for the Christian. This is what we're called to. You're called to worship God. You know, some people act like, well, you've got to be careful and reverential about the way that you act in the church building. And, and this is the time that we worship God and we raise our hands and we praise God and our hearts are moved to think about God on Sunday mornings when we're here. But what Paul is saying here is everywhere that you go is a church. Every day of your life is a worship service. Through the way that you act at work and the way that you are in your home, everything is supposed to be devoted in, in allegiance to the Lord. Everything is an act of worship. Your house is a church. Your TV room is a church. Your school is a church. Your, your workplace is a church. It is a place where you go to worship God. Everything that you do. Because you're offering the entire, your entire being to the Lord. And that's what he's saying. I, I appeal to you on the basis of all that God has done that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice. This same commentator goes on, he says this, either the whole of Christian life is worship and the gatherings, that is when we come together as a church and sacramental acts of the community provide equipment and instruction for this, or these gatherings and acts lead to absurdity. What he's saying here basically is this. Listen, if what we say about God when we're here on Sunday is true, then everything that we do has to be for the Lord. What we do Monday through Saturday, what we do in every place that we go has to be for the Lord or what we say here is just absurdity. It makes no sense. Everything is to be devoted in worship to the Lord. Well, we see a couple of practical outworkings of this appeal then we've seen the foundation of the appeal we've seen the appeal that we're to devote our body to the lord but now we get to unpack that well what does that look like what does it look like to live for the lord and to worship the lord monday through saturday in the places that we go and 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 the places that we live day in and day out and the first thing that we see is that we are not to be conformed to this world so that's in verse 2. He says, give your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now verse 2, this is what it looks like. Don't be conformed to the world. Don't be conformed to the world. This, this is a word that has the idea of just simply taking the form of and molding into the world. And this is, I think, why, why we're talking about worldviews and, and why I'm hitting so hard on this is because I think this is one of the biggest issues in, in the evangelical Christian world. I think that we're not thinking like Christians. We're, our mind is not shaped and transformed as we're going to see by the Word of God. But instead, we're just fitting into the mold of the world. We're, we're going to church and we're sprinkling a little Christianity on top. We've got a, a Christian veneer, but underneath all of that is people who are just like everyone else. People who are thinking and being conformed to the world. What, is it, what does it look like to give yourself totally and completely over to God? Well, it means, first of all, that we don't let the world shape the way that we think. You know, you're, you're always fitting in with, with someone. It, I find it humorous sometimes when, when people say, you know, I'm different. And, and they really go out of the way to try to make themselves look different and appear different and, and act different. I, I remember... Uh, growing up, and, and maybe it's still popular in, in certain places, but I, re I remember uh, a lot of kids my age uh, started dressing in all black, you know, goth, and they wanted to be different and they wanted to stand out. 
Well, next thing you know, you go to the mall and half the people are all wearing black. You're not standing out at all. You're just like everybody else, you know. And uh, that's the reality about the way that we are in, in the world. Sometimes we try to be different and we try to look different. But what we find is we end up, maybe we're not fitting in with the larger culture, but there's some subculture that we're always fitting in with. There's, there's some other group that we're, we're really just becoming like this little subculture, this smaller group, this so, smaller segment of society. We're not truly different. Uh, and that's the way that we are. And that's the way some people try to be different. No matter how hard you try, you're just fitting in with some other crowd. But here we see the way that we are, are really to be different. Christians, unfortunately, have a tendency to just fit into the mold like jello, just fit into whatever mold that we're giving. We imitate the world. And this is one of the great crises in, in the Christian community is that we're simply fitting in with the world. You know, Christ died not only to save us from the penalty of our sins, but to deliver us from this world, to deliver us from conformity to the world. Galatians 1.4 says this, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave Himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. Jesus died to save you from all this foolishness. Jesus died to save you from conformity to this present evil age. And so we're called to be different. Don't conform to this world. You know, it, it happens so easily, doesn't it? We don't think about conforming to the world. We just do it. We're just raised with a certain way of looking, a certain, uh, a certain outlook, certain friends, and certain music and movies that we listen to. And all of that shapes the way that we look at the world and the way that we behave in the world. And next thing you know, there's, there's no distinguishing difference between us and the world. And, and Paul's saying, don't do that. Don't be conformed to this world. Well, what are we to do then? And that's the next thing that we see and what we really want to focus on here. Instead of being conformed to the world, we are to be transformed. Now, we, we talked about how that first word, to be conformed, meant to sort of take the form of, sort of fit into a mold. But this word now, uh, this word is transform. It's the word where we get our word metamorphosis. And so you think of, of the caterpillar who goes into his cocoon and he goes through this phase of metamorphosis and he comes out radically different right he goes in just this this creepy crawly little thing and comes out with wings and he's flying and beautiful all this color uh, it, it's a radical transformation it's a metamorphosis christian that's what you've been called to you've been called to be changed and this isn't just a little change. It, the, the, if the only difference between you and the rest of the world is that once in a while you show up at church or once in a while you read your Bible, then this isn't happening to you. You're to be radically changed. You're to be transformed from the inside out to become something completely different than what you are now and what the world is. To be transformed. That's what it means to give yourself wholly and completely, to offer your body as a living sacrifice. It means that you sacrifice everything. Your way of thinking about the world, your way of operating in the world, your way of living, you nail it all to the cross and you follow Christ and you're transformed. You're changed, completely different. And that's what we're called to. But notice, and this is where we get into the worldview issue. Where, how does this transformation take place? Do you see this? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. How does it take place? By the renewal of your mind. 
It begins with the way that you think. And that's where I started this morning with uh, where does human behavior come from? You know, the typical view of, of human behavior from a sort of a naturalistic worldview is that we're completely physical beings. We've got a brain with with, with you know, neurotransmitters, chemicals going around in our brain and electrical uh, shocks sort of sending that along the way. And and we're just a we're just a. In the end, we're just a result of that process going on in our in our head. There's a there's a brain there, uh, and that's where our human behavior comes from. And so, the way that you act is the way that your brain is formed, and the way that that those things happen. Well, that's rather fatalistic, I think. It doesn't give us much hope. You are who you are, and there's no real ch- chance of of changing that. Uh, I think that's too uh, fatalistic. In fact, I think that's why you see that impacting even our our criminal justice system. I don't want to get off on a on a rabbit trail here, but we don't punish people uh, for their crimes because we don't really think we can hold them accountable. Well, they're just doing, you know, they've had this certain upbringing and maybe they've got certain chemical imbalances. And so uh, what they've done is really to be expected. Uh, That's why we see people, you know, committing rape and then getting, you know, what, six months in jail for it because uh, this person is just the product of certain uh, his environment and the way that his brain is formed. And so, you know, our, our best chance is maybe to, to medicate him and seek to change the way that his brain is working and, and, and maybe a little bit of counseling, but we can't really ultimately hold him accountable and punish him for the crime that he's done. Well, I think that's wrong, and I think the Bible gives us a, a different perspective of the human being. The Bible teaches that there's a soul. Yes, certainly we are physical beings. We have bodies and we have emotions and we have we have a brain and we do have all those chemical processes going on in inside of us and certainly that's part of of our behavior but but there's something that supersedes that something outside of that there's a a spiritual a spiritual aspect a spiritual dimension to our being you see we're made in the image of god animals animals act on the basis of of what their brains and their nature tells them to do and we don't expect any different they do what they do, and we, know we don't have moral outrage because animals do something that we deem immoral. Uh, but we do for human beings because we believe they have a soul. They have the ability to think through that. And yes, their brain affects their behavior, but there's something, there's something more than that. There's, there's a soul that, that sits outside of, of those natural processes and, and is able to decide, I'm going to do this or, or not to do that. Just saying, let me give you a, a couple of examples. You know, maybe sometimes we, we get angry and, uh, and somebody does something to us and our mind, our brain begins to work and we've got our imagination. We, we got the, we've got our brain playing the highlight, highlight reel of how they've offended us. You, am, I, am I the only one that does that? Just playing it over and over again in your head? We, we hit rewind and let's watch that one more time and let's just see how they just offended me and what they did. And then our, our reasoning kicks in and we're thinking about the ways that we could get back at them. And certainly our emotions are, are just firing on all cylinders as we're, we're just becoming angrier and, and, and we're, we're furious at what they're doing. Even, even our body begins to adapt to that. Our, our hands draw up. We, we kind of naturally make a fist. Maybe I'm just talking about myself here, but uh, our, our teeth clench and we get angry. Our eyes dilate. We're ready to pounce on somebody and, and take them out. We're, we're angry. But do we just act on that? Do, do we go ahead and let them have it? Maybe sometimes we do. 
But we hold people accountable for that because we believe there's something else at play. We believe there's a spiritual dimension. There's a, there's a soul that that person has. And that soul uh, influences that behavior. And that soul should know the idea of morality, that it's wrong to attack somebody. It's wrong to hurt somebody. And so we restrain that. Our mind, our emotions, our, everything within us physically is telling us to do it. And yet we say, no, I'm not going to do that. The reason that we're able to do that is because we're moral creatures. We've been, we've been given a soul. We're in the image of God. We're different than animals. Animals sense that, uh, sense that uh, rivalry. They, they sense those feelings and they attack. And we don't get mad at them because they're animals. They don't have a soul. But we do. We're different. A young man, here's, a, here's another example. A young man's encouraged to, to go skydiving. And to jump out of a plane, his friends all tell him, hey, let's, let's go skydiving. So he gets into the plane. As they're ascending up in, in the plane, going up into the clouds, uh, he begins to think about, and his reasoning kicks in about all the ways that this could go wrong. His imagination is, is playing the, the reel of him falling from the sky and pulling his cord and nothing coming out and, and him going splat on the ground. His, his body's in on the action as his hands are sweating and he's just sweating profusely. He's... He's clammy. His, his knees are shaking, right? Everything in him. We even say that sometimes, don't we? Everything in me was telling me to do this or not to do it, but I didn't or, or I did. But yet that young man begins to go ahead and, and he goes and he jumps out of the plane, even though his mind, his reasoning, every capability that he has, his physical body are all telling him not to do it. He, as a, a soul, has the ability to act that out and to carry it through. You see, there's another dimension to our, our being. We say things like this. Everything was telling me not to do it, but, but I did it. We're, we're not animals. You know, if, a, if an animal sees something and, and feels threatened, he, he attacks. If a, if a prey feels threatened, he hides. But human beings have moral courage, right? They, they do things that don't make sense because they, they've got this courage. And all of that, I think, comes from the idea that we have a soul, that we are, there's another element, another dimension to, we, to how we act. But on what basis do we make that determination? What, what is it that leads us to act in this way and not to act in that way? Well, I think it's our mind. And by mind, I don't just mean our brain. I mean our mindset, our ideology, our philosophy, our outlook on life, our worldview. So for instance, think back to the, the boy I just talked about who jumps out of the plane. What would lead somebody to jump out of the plane? I, I would never do it. That's crazy, right? Why would you go up however many thousands of feet in the air and jump out? Especially when your mind's telling you not to do it, your, your body's telling you not to do it, that this is dangerous. What would lead? Well, well, maybe that boy's grown up with an ideology, a philosophy that men are tough, that men don't allow things to scare them. They, they don't back down from a challenge. And so even though everything's telling him not to do it, he has an ideology and, and, and a view of the world that tells them, I'm going for this. I'm going to do it. Right? And that's the way that morality works. That's, I think, what Paul is calling us to do here. He's saying what, what it is that needs to be transformed in us is this mindset, this worldview, this basis upon which we as souls, as, as moral agents, decide to act or not to act. Be, be transformed, and how so, Paul? By the renewing of your mind. Your, your mindset needs to be changed. When he says that your mind needs to be 
renewed. He's not just talking about your your rational capabilities need to be changed. That needs to happen, of course. Uh, as fallen human beings, every aspect of, of who we are, our, our rational capabilities, all of it is fallen and broken. But what he's saying needs to be renewed is the way that you think about the world. Your philosophy, your worldview, what you think is right and wrong, what you think ultimate reality is, all of those things need to be shifted and changed and renewed. We might ask ourselves, well, why does it need to be renewed? First of all, we see in that word renew the idea of something that was once there that's been lost and now needs to be restored, right? Uh, and, and we understand from what we said last week, there's a Christian worldview that, that human beings were created in perfection. There was a time in which we thought about the world, in which we thought about how we are to act and how we are to live, and we thought rightly. That was before the fall. That was the way that God created us. But in the fall, our minds have been distorted. So listen to Romans chapter 1 as it depicts the problem with humanity. Romans 1 and verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them over to a debased mind. There's that same word, Romans 1, 28. We've been given over to a debased mind, a debased worldview, a debased way of looking and thinking about the world, a debased way of thinking about how we are to act and how we are to live. And we see the result of this in Romans 1.28. They, they were given up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedience to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Our mindset has been broken. The way that we think is messed up. And what we see in Romans 1 is that all of these wicked behaviors, where do they come from? They come from a mind that's been distorted as a result of our rejection of God. And that's why Paul says in Romans 12 that what needs to happen for us for our behavior to change, we can't just focus on our behavior, we have to go to a deeper level. Our mind needs to be fixed. The way that we think needs to be renewed. It needs to be changed. And that is what we are called to. And I think that's what I've essentially been trying to get at in this idea of, of a worldview. Sanctification, the process of becoming more holy, begins as your mind and the way that you think about the world begins to be shifted and changed and renewed back to the way that it was in creation. So it was lost. Our mind was, we've lost our mind, so to speak. And now in Christ, it's being renewed. The way that we view this world is being changed. And it all begins with, with this mind, this, this way that we view the world. You know, we're called to this, this sanctification process. And I hope you understand what that is. It's the process of becoming more holy and more like Christ. Listen, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are to be sanctified. Where you are in two years from now, you should look more like Christ. You should be more holy two years from now than you are today. And two years from then, you should be more holy and more like Christ. You should be growing and maturing. 
some of you have had children that uh, perhaps have, have had problems growing, right? They haven't grown at the right rate. And you know that there's that chart that, that you go to the doctor and they say, here's the chart of average children. And this is where your child is. He's in the 80th percentile, the 90th percentile or so on. So, so we're a little worried about his weight. We're a little worried about, about his size. He's not where he ought to be. Well, spiritually speaking, that should be happening with us. There's a chart of, of growth and we ought to be progressing year after year, day after day, and becoming more like Christ. And Paul is saying the way that that happens primarily and the way that we need to focus on is by having our mindset change. You know, so many Christians just think about in, individual actions, particular behaviors, and they say, well, I need to straighten this out and I need to try to do this better. The, the real issue is that their, their mind needs to be renewed. They need a new perspective, a new way of looking at the world. You know, in part, I think, as we kind of bring this to a close this morning, I think this is so often why we lose our children to the world. And I mentioned this last week, I'll mention it again this week. And that is because they're conformed to the world in their mind. On the outside, we're bringing them to church, and they're part of the children's church, or they're part of the youth group, uh, but we're allowing their minds to be shaped and molded by the world. What they think about morality and right and wrong and, and all the things that they think are being shaped by a school system, a secular school system, and by friends that don't know the Lord and by music and by, by movies and all of these things are shaping and influencing our children. And we think, well, I'm bringing them to church once a week. Every week I'm here. And then when they turn 18, they're gone. And, and we're like, what happened? Their mind was conformed to the world. And this is the problem not only with our children, it's the problem with so many of us. It's the, it's the reason why the church so often is, is so worldly. It, it just looks like the world. There's no difference in our morality. There's no difference. You know, we talk about like things like the divorce rate is not really any different inside of the church or outside of the church. Well, what's the problem? Our minds are conformed to the world. We're living and thinking like the world. We're living like the world because we're thinking like the world. And for the Christian, the process of becoming more holy centers on renewing our mind. Well, how do we renew our mind? That's the goal of this series. We need to begin allowing Scripture to shape everything that we do. Scripture doesn't just shape the way the church is organized. Scripture doesn't just shape the way that we sing or the way that we preach or what we do when we're inside these four walls. Scripture should shape every aspect of your life. You should think as a Christian wherever you're at. And again, that's what Paul is calling us to here this morning. To give our bodies as a living sacrifice. Everywhere that you go should be a place of worship. Everywhere that you go, you should be thinking like a Christian. Whatever sector, whatever sphere of life that you are in. Will you pray with me this morning? Our Heavenly Father, we pray this morning that you would enable us to have our minds renewed. Help us to see the utter importance of, of having the way that we think 